Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through literature for the best articles so that you don't have to. And then we provide expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the Journal Feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First off, final word on remdesivir. Next, antibiotics for your appendicitis. After that, steroids to treat a sore throat. Then, learning through podcasts. And finally, creatinine screening for stroke imaging. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the stunning Sam Parnell, Karen Wolf, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So let's get on with it. The first article was titled Remdesivir for the Treatment of COVID-19 Final Report out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Gilead has been trying to find a use for remdesivir since about 2009. And after finally the fourth virus they tested on, they might have found just that. But not all the evidence is positive, unfortunately. The simple trial showed benefit, but 10 days wasn't any better than 5 days and might have even been worse. Also, that trial didn't contain a placebo arm. After that, the solidarity trial from the WHO showed no benefit, but it also lacked placebo, and it was open-label, and they didn't report any symptom durations. Then, the preliminary ACTT1 data seemed to show a benefit, which was the best quality data to date, but this was only preliminary. What we have for you today is the final report of what the ACTT1 data has to say about remdesivir and COVID. This was a double-blinded RCT with 1,062 hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and lower respiratory infection who got remdesivir 200 milligrams loading dose on day one and then got 100 milligrams daily for two to 10 days or they just got placebo. About a quarter of the patients included were on a ventilator or had ECMO. The primary outcome was recovery of symptoms, which was accomplished by the treatment group in 10 days compared to the placebo group at a longer period of 15 days for a rate ratio of 1.29. The group that benefited the most in the treatment group were those who required oxygen but were not yet on a ventilator. The secondary outcome of 15-day mortality was also better with remdesivir, but the 29-day mortality checkpoint was not. By way of harms, there was no evidence of harm compared with the placebo. Alright, so do you feel like that cleared things up? I don't really know that it did, but it wasn't negative. It was actually more pseudo-positive data. In a spoonful, remdesivir sped the recovery of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 compared with placebo, especially if they were earlier in the disease course. So next we have the second article, which was titled A Randomized Trial Comparing Antibiotics with Appendectomy for Appendicitis out of the New England Journal of Medicine. The treatment of appendicitis has been surgery for about as long as we could really do surgery. However, it was remarked upon as early as 60 years ago that antibiotics may also play a role in treatment. This notion has been met with a lot of skepticism, though, and the evidence, for the most part, hasn't been a slam dunk in either direction, either for or against antibiotics. 
So even if we know that surgery is, I mean, really tried and true at this point, the CODA collaborative thought that there was enough uncertainty for equipose and decided to do this RCT. This was a non-blinded, non-inferiority, multi-center randomized trial of 1,500 adults for imaging-confirmed appendicitis. Comparing antibiotics to surgery, there was no inferiority for the primary outcome of quality of life score at 30 days, with these scores being nearly identical. However, that in mind, 29% of the antibiotic group had gotten an appendectomy by 90 days, most of which had an appendicolith, but 25% still didn't. Complications like infections, need for a drain, or antibiotic-related reactions were more common in the antibiotic group, though this was mainly driven by patients, again, with appendicolis. That means more repeat visits, more scans, more time, and likely more money. So maybe surgery will reign supreme for a little while longer, certainly for those with an appendicolis, but perhaps a more selective antibiotic approach could be more useful in the future, and you may see this in years to come. In the spoonful, antibiotic treatment compared with surgery for appendicitis was non-inferior at 30 days for quality of life. Further out, though, there were more complications with antibiotics, and many patients crossed over to the surgery group, especially those with an appendicolith. And then after that, we have the third article, which was titled Corticosteroids for Sore Throat, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Sore throats, of course, are a pain in the neck, and also a common presentation for acute care. Most of these cases will not need antibiotics, and the disease should clear on its own. In the meantime, though, pain control is still a significant issue, which can affect hydration and nutritional status if it's bad enough. But... If it's inflamed, then you can try calling on your old friend steroids, you know, at least for a trial. So could steroids provide enough analgesia and inflammation control to be worth it as a cure-all for patients with uncomplicated sore throats? This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of nine double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized trials investigating corticosteroids versus placebo in 1,300 patients with sore throat. Complicated patients like those hospitalized with peritonsillar abscesses or post-procedures like tonsillectomy or intubation were excluded. And steroids ended up packing a fairly decent punch with some convincing benefits. A 21% absolute reduction in pain by 24 hours that continued out to 48 hours as well. And in the meantime, onset of pain relief was only 6 hours and 12 hours was the mean time to complete pain resolution. The number needed to treat for complete pain resolution at 24 or 48 hours was only 5. Nothing to scoff at there, really. And there was no significant harms reported. The catch to this study comes with the limitations of the meta-analysis, which were quite significant. Most of the patients also got antibiotics, which kind of defeats the point of all of this. But anyways... Also, the type, route, and duration of steroids varied significantly. That and only two studies included pediatric populations and only two reported adverse events, which is really quite a significant concern. These things in mind, I'd say that the jury is still out on this one. There's promising evidence that say that steroids does reduce the pain of a sore throat, but the final say is probably going to come down to your judgment and the patient in front of you. 
In a spoonful, corticosteroids was associated with a significant relief of pain in uncomplicated sore throats, with a number needed to treat of 5 for complete pain resolution at 24 hours. Then the fourth article titled The Effect of Interpolated Questions on Podcast Knowledge Acquisition and Retention, a double-blinded multi-center randomized control trial out of the annals of emergency medicine. Aha! A topic that is near and dear to my heart. Podcasts are the audio format that is sweeping the nation and revolutionizing medical education. I'd personally say that podcasts are a great way to learn more about medicine. And if you think that this podcast manages to do that, then, you know, don't be shy. Leave a five-star review. Some of my own personal favorites for medical podcasts that focus on education include the Internet Book of Critical Care, the Pediatric Emergency Playbook, of course, the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, and Emergency Medicine Cases podcast. Unfortunately, though, distracted listening is something that we all suffer from and will decrease how much you learn when listening. Would the introduction of interpolated questions capture listeners' attention and enhance learning? Well, would they? I'll give you a second to think. Okay, time's up. Personally, I exclusively listen to podcasts while doing other things, and I'm also guilty of cranking up that fast-forward setting to improve my podcast throughput. Are we remembering what we hear? These researchers randomized residents to listen to a podcast with or without interpolated questions, and administered an immediate post-test as well as a retention test a few weeks later. While there is no immediate difference for the first test, the retention scores improved in the interpolated questions group. The effect was modest, but it seems like something that's fairly easy to do to improve some retention. Maybe I'll start asking more questions of my own. Now, as my last personal anecdote, the way that I think is best to retain information from podcasts, or what I find is effective for me, is reading the show notes and listening to the podcast on the same topic. Since I'm rarely up to date on all my podcasts, it kind of gives me this nice reinforcement and sort of some space repetition as well. I recommend that you do the same, and you can do it with this podcast, by subscribing to our newsletter and getting all the journal feed summaries in your email. Anyways, in a spoonful, when interpolated questions were added to a podcast in a small RCT, they modestly improved knowledge retention. And finally, the last article, which was titled Impact of Creatinine Screening on Contrast-Induced Nephropathy Following Computerized Tomography for Stroke, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Time is brain, people. Time is brain. Your brain has about 86 billion neurons in it in total. And every minute that a portion of your brain goes without oxygen because of a stroke, there are millions of neurons dying. So strokes are ideally treated quickly. And to do that, they need to be diagnosed quickly. And to help with that diagnosis, IV contrast and neuroimaging can be very helpful to get a better image. Now, given the traditional teaching that patients with kidney disease should not receive IV contrast, it's currently recommended to screen for kidney function before giving contrast. Are the precious minutes used for screening really worth the delay in stroke patients, though? This was a retrospective study of 382 emergency department patients with suspected strokes, included during a period with mandatory creatinine screening and a period without screening before giving IV contrast for CT angiogram studies of the brain. 
What the researchers found was that there was no significant difference observed for the development of contrast-induced neuropathy, renal impairment at 30 days or 90 days, nor any differences in mortality. No patients underwent hemodialysis either. This study adds to the growing body of evidence that AKI after contrast is a hugely overstated risk. These results line up with past literature and show that there is a low risk of complications. There's only one organ in the human body that we can artificially replace, and I can tell you that it's not the brain. I see no reason to prioritize nephrons over neurons. And luckily, it seems that you don't even have to because forgoing screening didn't have any effect. In a spoonful, getting rid of creatinine pre-screening before contrast-positive studies on suspected stroke patients did not change the rates of contrast-induced nephropathy, hemodialysis, or mortality. And that is it for this week. That is everything. Let's do a rapid review of everything we learned to help with that retention. First, remdesivir seems to work. At least a bit. In some people. Maybe. Next, in the short term, antibiotics seem to do well for appendicitis. In the longer term, perhaps we may need to be more selective about which patients qualify for this treatment. Third, steroids may be effective for sore throat pain relief. But as for who to give them to specifically, that part we're going to have to leave up to you. Fourth, adding questions to podcasts improves knowledge retention. So, do you remember the number needed to treat for steroids to treat sore throat pain? What was it? And lastly, nephrons versus neurons in stroke patients? You may not be compromising the kidney side of things by not screening creatinine, as there is no difference in contrast-induced events without it. And we finish off there. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.